Welcome to the Pacific Point Church Podcast, where we're learning to love and live like Jesus. During this half hour, we're praying that God will direct, encourage, and speak to you. If you would like to partner with Pacific Point Church and our church plants, visit us at pacificpointchurch.com give. At that same site, you can also watch and listen to previous sermons, read follow-up blog posts and extended notes, and even connect with Pacific Point Church on social media. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. All right, good morning, everyone. We're good. We're good there. Cool. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Pacific Point Church. As she said, my name is Luke Gain. I'm happy to be here with you guys. We are continuing in our Ephesians series, so go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 as we get it set up here. Um, uh, This morning, I'm I'm sure as you may have heard, uh, we wanted to address real quick just as a church, we want to be prayerful, yes, but we also, for local churches and for local community and for this place here, absolutely. But we also are part of the church body at large, and as we understand it, there is a major conflict going on in the Middle East that has been absolutely horrific. And so if you've been on social media even a a little bit, or if you have more than five friends, you might have people on either side of the conflict fighting for them being right, right? Either the Palestinian conflict or the Israeli conflict. Whose side should you be on? Who should we be fighting with and fighting for? And so I just want to encourage you guys uh, with the fact that the Holy Spirit has given each and every single one of us right discernment. And Charles Spurgeon says this, discernment is not the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is, the, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. And this world is going to try to make you pick sides. This world is going to try to make you say that you are right if you say it this way, and you are absolutely wrong if you say it this way. But God says, Jesus says in John 15, that the world, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. We are to stand on the Lord's side. And right now, the conflict is absolutely atrocious, particularly for the Christian people. And so before we get started, before we dive into Ephesians 2, I just want to pray that God would move and ultimately be glorified. And then we'll jump into Ephesians 2. God, we just thank you so much for uh, who you are and the fact that you're in charge, the fact that you're completely sovereign, that you are king And so we don't quite understand everything that happens, not only in our own personal lives, but also, too, in the lives of others and the world at large. But you do. And so we want to have peace that goes beyond all understanding, the peace that rules our hearts, the peace that you can bring, God. And we just ask that you would um, ultimately rule over our own lives and help us understand how glorious you truly are, God. So for the people, the families, the children, the women, the men out in the Middle East, for the Christians, for the churches that are um, being just brutally uh, hurt, killed, and otherwise damaged, God. We pray and ask for protection. We pray and ask for your peace out there. Uh, We pray and ultimately ask that you would reveal yourself to them and ultimately bring yourself glory, God, that the church out there would move in powerful ways and that you would continue to do a mighty work. God, today, right now, would you please speak as we open up your word, as we hear from you, would you move in our hearts, those of, you who, those of us who may not know you and those that do? Would you stir a deeper affection for your children? And would you open up the eyes who may not know you yet? God, we love you so much and we thank you so much for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So sorry for the heavy opening. I, I think I've been, uh, I, I've been criticized for being a little heavy up here and a little stoic, so I'm trying to 
loosen up. But honestly, like getting up here, it's kind of like the high dive, right? Like you like look as a little kid, and it's like the high dive is not that big. And then you get up there and it's like, holy Moses, this is awful. What did I decide to do? And it like doesn't look like much here, but honestly, like it just looks way more intimidating. So um, any of you all critics would love for you guys to maybe do the announcements and then check in with me after that. But um, we have a tendency on Sunday mornings or throughout the week, Christians, we have a tendency to really enjoy churchy words, right? Or churchy phrases. And we say them in our prayers. We say them throughout our weeks. Hashtag blessed, right? But a few I want to address today. A few that I want to address today. Um, one is God is good, right? A little churchy word. It's great. Uh, God's grace. We sang it. God's grace is amazing. And as you walked in and have maybe you've seen on your pamphlet, love God and love people, right? Those are all very churchy words, but I don't know. And, and this is something for me too. Anytime I'm sharing God's word with you, anytime I'm preaching, it is a message for me as well. It is convicting. It is rough throughout the study. Um, but have we ever stopped to think about these words and actually understand what they mean? And not just understand what they mean, but actually live them out as truth. Like, what makes God good? When you say God is good, or amen to God is good, what do you think of? What comes to mind when you say or hear God is good? You're like, yep, I agree. Why? We can tell uh, to the umpteenth degree all week long till we're blue in the face why the Dallas Cowboys are good, if you are a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, or not so good, sorry, Joey, right? or why we enjoy that particular steak from that particular restaurant. It is so good and buttery and tender and delicious. When we think about God is good, what do we actually think about? Or why is grace so amazing? Because we sing about it? Because it was written as a poem a long time ago and we put some sweet music to it? Why is grace so amazing? And the last one that I'll be addressing today is do we love God and do we love people? Yeah. Truly and deeply. Do we love God and do we love people? And so we're in Ephesians chapter 2. I have been tasked with preaching on 4 through 7, but it is hard and difficult to preach on 4 through 7 without first addressing 1 through 3. John did an amazing job with 1 through 3, and I'm going to essentially recap what he talked about, but it'll, tri it'll trickle into verses 4 through 7. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." God is good, absolutely, but we must understand that he is predominantly holy. I want to take a look real quick back at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. Those of us who are not following Christ, who are not Christians, are children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's. God's wrath is just and necessary. And I've talked about this before, but Jesus did not predominantly save us on the cross and rise again to save us from our sins, to save us from hurting other people's feelings, to save us from getting into trouble. He predominantly, as a loving Savior, saved us from God's wrath. But a lot of people might ask, how in the world could a good God send people to hell? How could a good God be so wrathful and punish people in such a vicious way? But a good God who's indifferent to sin is not good news, nor a good God. God's wrath is only bad news for those who do not follow him. God's wrath is only bad news for those who do not follow him. A.W. Tozer puts it this way in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys He hates iniquity as a mother hates the illness that takes the life of her child. That is God's wrath. He is not an unrighteous judge that wants to get away with whatever he wants to get away with or viciously cruel. He is just righteous and good as a mother who watches her dying child on the hospital bed suffer from cancer as badly as she wants to do everything that she possibly can to remove that illness from her dear child is the same way that God attacks wrathfully the sins in which we follow. The question of how could a good God do that actually comes from a heart that thinks we are actually not very far off from a God or a heart who thinks that we know better, right? Somebody who asks, how could a good God possibly do that? I wouldn't do that. I would be much more merciful, much more gracious, much more kind if it were up to me. But if we had the right understanding of who God truly is, the question that should be getting asked is, how could anyone possibly reject this good God? If we have a good and right understanding of who God is, and this is what we're going to be discussing in verses 1 through 3, of who he truly is, then the question we should be asking is, how could anyone possibly reject this good God? The answer is this. We think we are good enough, or at least not as bad as somebody else, right? John said, beware of comparing your sins to others. Last week, he talked about, don't compare yourself to others. You can always be better than somebody else. Well, I smoked a little marijuana, but at least I'm not doing heroin. And then the heroin guy goes, well, I did some heroin, but at least I didn't murder somebody. And the murderer goes, well, at least I didn't, right? You can continue to trickle down, but as John showed us with the chain, the most grotesque sin that can make you as farthest from God as possible is no different than the same one link away from being God is that we have been made separate. The go-to is, well, at least I'm not Hitler, but Hitler, hell was not reserved for the Hitlers and Disney villains of this world. It is reserved for people who want nothing to do with God and only want to do with themselves. But Paul here, here's the interesting news for all y'all who are like, yeah, I'm a child of God, I'm good. Paul here puts us all on the same playing field. Verses one through three again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom who? We all once lived. 
This letter is coming from Paul, formerly known as Saul. What's his history? A mass murderer of Christians. And he's writing to the church of Ephesus, and I can imagine little Johnny hearing this message for the first time going, "Ah, I am not like Paul. What is he talking about? I have never murdered anybody. I've never tried taking out the entire Christian population. What are you, insane? But Paul here is putting everyone on the same playing field as himself. And it is because of what? It is because of how good God is that we are all made separate from him. But how sweet is this, right? How sweet is this reality? Just a quick side note, as Christians, we don't have to be, we shouldn't be, judgmental of others. We were all formerly just as depraved and deprived of holiness as the worst person on earth. We often think about this person who might become close to a Christian is very similar in looking like and behaving like one of us. And we often disregard the person we despise the most. Imagine having, you have the capacity to have beautiful compassion on the worst of the worst person in the Middle East. What fires you up on social media, what gets your gears going, you have the Holy Spirit that has compassion on others. Jesus did not primarily come down and heal others just to show off. He primarily came down and often asked people not to share about his compassion. He healed people because he was compassionate, the worst of the worst. I'll talk a little bit more on that later, but we have the ability and the compassion to love not just our neighbors who we think are similar to us, but our worst enemies. This is sweet news, but I'll talk a little bit more on that later. God's character, no matter who we are, what we've done, are completely separate. We are completely separate from him because he is the goodest good. His holiness is the pinnacle. We are all guilty and separate from God, and we must understand first, God is a holy God. We must understand God's Holiness. It is his favorite and most predominant attribute. Today's day and age, we have some of these bad boys, right? Where we can underline, highlight, and maybe even color, or if you're really fired up, go all caps when we want to emphasize something. In the Bible, the way that they emphasize something was repetition. The only quality of God, the only characteristic of God that is repeated three times is what? Holy, holy, holy. It is his favorite and most predominant attribute. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3 says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But what is holiness? Holiness, simply put, is this. It is well and whole. W-H-O-L-E. Well and whole. And all of God's attributes 
are fully well and completely whole, that they are fully separate from our own. His infinitude, his immutability, his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his presence, his faithfulness, his goodness, his justice, his love, his sovereignty, his grace, and his mercy are far and beyond anything we might be able to bring to the table. A Lego character that can be shifted and colored to look exactly like me is closer in similarity to me than I am to God. A little plastic toy with no life. That is a simple comparison to the immensity of God's holiness. But doesn't it then, we have no opportunity to get to him, but doesn't that then make all of this pointless? Doesn't verses 1 through 3 sound completely helpless? We were dead in our trespasses. There's nothing that we can do or have done to even come close. Some of my students, I'm a teacher Monday through Friday, and some of my students refuse to take tests or refuse to do assignments because they say, what's the point? If I'm going to fail, why put forth the energy if I'm just going to fail anyway? I'd rather sit back, relax, put on my hoodie, and not do anything. And honestly, without the good news of the gospel, we church should be in the same lane. But despite the vast separation, the impossible became possible. His redemption was lavished upon us, and God made the way to life, and not just a beating heart, but life to the full. Why? Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, It was not because of anything that we did, nor will it ever be about anything that we did, but it is because of his rich mercy and great love. He chose us. He chose. How often do we get a choice to be loving and gracious and choose not to be? He chose as the most powerful being to be gracious, merciful, loving, and kind when he did not need to. A friend of mine who's a pastor says this, God's love for you is from everlasting to everlasting. His love was predestined for you. Therefore, if God loved you before you existed, then you can be sure that his love towards you is not dependent on human performance. His love is uncaused and undeserved towards those in Christ. It is not our merit, but his mercy. God is good because he is holy. Grace is amazing because it is, number two, not our merit, but his mercy. It has nothing to do with what we have done. We oftentimes find ourselves to be in two major camps. Either we are in the camp of way too casual, i.e. I'm pretty much just as holy as God. I'm good to go. My sins don't really matter. There aren't much consequences. I'm saved. I'm solid. But this is where we don't think about our sin. (laughs) We compare ourselves to others, or we justify, 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 and sit and stag- stag- sit stagnant in our relationship with the Lord, not willing to deepen our relationship with God, our understanding of Him, or grow in holiness. That's camp number one that we find ourselves in. Or we sometimes find ourselves in camp number two, which is hypercritical and self-deprecating. This is where we are hyper-focused on all of the bad we have done and are having difficulty letting go of our guilt and shame. Are you hard on yourself? Do you at times think that you're not good enough? Might be here today wondering, how could this God possibly consider me? But take a look at his kindness. 
in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It was not by skill, it was not by ability, it was not by good looks, it was not by coolness level, it was not by approval, it was not by your income, it was not by your adequacy or inadequacy, but rather by the gift of grace. But what is grace? Grace is God giving us something we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding something we absolutely deserve. Can we take a look real quick at verse 5 through 6 and notice these three words? And it'll be up on the screen. With, with, with. God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is a place reserved for us with him in the heavenly places. But why did he do such a thing? Verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants to so badly for you to be with him that he made the impossible possible and the vast separation minute, disappeared, gone. He so badly wants to be in relationship with each and every one of his children. He has a reservation for each of us in heaven. But what makes heaven so great? Why is heaven somewhere we should want to and yearn for? Why is eternity a place where we should want to go? Hollywood would make you think that you get angel wings and a halo and you can hang out in the clouds and sit back like a nice comfortable couch better than any purple mattress. great mattress. You either like it or you don't. But what makes heaven so great? The Bible talks about what will not be there more than it talks about what will be there. What will not be present in heaven is tears, turmoil, sin, darkness. But the one thing it guarantees will be there is the presence of God. Do we understand what that means? When we say that, even me saying that right now, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it and understanding the beauty and the depth of the sweetness that is God's presence. Do we yearn to be with God? Not just for won't, won't be there. Do we yearn for heaven for not just won't, won't be there, the turmoil, the cancer, the wars, the sickness, the death, the uncertainty, the sin, the betrayal. But do we yearn to be there because we want to know him more? because we yearn for his mercy, grace, kindness, and love. It's a question that I want to challenge each of us with today. We just saw in verses 4, 5, and 6 that he has saved us because of his grace and his grace alone. It was nothing that we did, and it was because out of the immensity of his kindness. That God is not almost like you. You are not almost like God. We are the furthest thing from it, and yet he chose us and wants us to be with him. Number three, the third challenge today, the third church word phrase is love God and love people, but do we actually? Understanding what we think about God helps us understand what we think about others. Do we really love God? And the answer before you do, the answer might be easy. Well, of, of course. Pfft, don't be silly. I'm still going to send it. Of course I love God. 
But why? Do we know who it is that we say we love on a daily basis? Before we answer that, we have to understand his love for us. Why? Because we love because he first loved us. It is so vitally important that we understand his love before we can understand whether or not we love him. Why? Because he, we love because he first loved us. But how does the Bible say that we show we know him? I think there's some confusion within the church of what is the reflection of a Christian. How do I know that I'm fully saved? 1 John 2, 3 says this, and you can be assured. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We'll talk a little bit on this later on in this chapter. But God wants us to know him, to know him deeply, intimately, relationally. Earlier, I said that those who ask, how could a good God possibly do X, Y, and Z? And they should really be asking, how can someone reject this good God? But when we get a deep understanding of who he is through his word, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, and love, we should really be asking, how could God possibly consider me? How could God be so merciful, so gracious, and so kind? How could he, little old me in Costa Mesa, in Newport, in Santa Ana, in Huntington Beach, how could a good, vast, all-powerful God consider me? Why not people in the Middle East? Why not people in Asia? Why not people in New York? How, in all of history, why did he choose me? David, saw in Psalm 8, he puts it perfectly. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Christianity is not some antidote that we selected after assessing our options. We didn't sit there and evaluate, hmm, should I pick Mormonism? Should I pick atheism? Or should I pick Christianity? You know what? This sounds pretty good and logical. I'll go with Christianity. We we're all dead. Dead. We didn't look and evaluate the table and say, this one seems like the best. It was God who came in with all of his power to make us alive again there to him. That's a clap, really. Um, like that of a man being resuscitated from a defibrillator. We should wake up to the reality of who God is with a gasp and cling to the great God and not ask, what can you do for me, great God? But rather, oh, good and gracious king, what can I do for you and your kingdom? All right. With this understanding and the compassion in which we now understand that others are perhaps bound to the enslavement of the prince of the power of the air, should we not have deep compassion for others? We have been set free to know this truth, to know this God. But the sad part is that many others have not. But what's stopping us from sharing about this good God with others? If we actually believe in the God we say we believe, you might have answered in your head, do you believe in God? You might have said, yes, absolutely, of course. The good, holy, righteous, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, Romans 8, if God is for us, who could be against us? Then what in the world is stopping us? If we do indeed actually love God, what is it that's keeping us from sharing others with God? Listen, we're talking to people. 
We're not talking about proving other people wrong. We're not talking about making sure that we win arguments. We are sharing God's perfect and holy love, but not nearly enough to share with them the good news of who God is. We say we love God. We say we love people. But I would challenge the church as well as even myself. I'm ashamed to say I've shied away from many opportunities, even this week, to share with others the goodness of who God is. We might love people, but not nearly enough to share with them the good news of who God is. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm listening to a beautiful series of Jonah, and it's been incredibly challenging. And one of the big questions at the beginning of the series was, why did Jonah not go to Nineveh? Was it because he was petrified of the Ninevites? Was it because it was really long and inconvenient and he'd rather watch Sunday football? Jonah chapter 4, verse 2 makes it very clear. He is angry with God and he says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made, ha made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't want to go because he knew God would save them. And he is livid at God in chapter four, livid. The Ninevites don't deserve this. They don't deserve your love. I didn't go because I knew that you are good and gracious and would save these wretched people. Now, what cruelty to do such a thing, but what faith. What faith. He had the faith to know with deep certainty that God would in fact save them. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that the God that he serves, that the God he loves, that the God he is a prophet for would in fact save them. Church, you do not need to answer. Do we have that level of faith? We aren't able to love people in the way that we should if we do not already have the certainty that whoever we talk to, God is going to save them. It is up to him. And even if they don't, even if they do not receive, it is up to God. It is not up to us. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither those who plant nor those who water are anything, but only God who gives the growth. It is only up to us to share. It is the greatest gift this side of heaven that we will not receive on the other side of eternity. We have the gift to be able to love others. How? By sharing who God is. And if you are on first step number one, step number one of understanding and having the faith that Jonah did of saying to God, I know that you are a good and gracious king. I didn't go because I have complete and utter faith that you're going to save them. And I frankly just don't want to. Fine, let's get there first. And then we'll talk about in life groups, sign up for a life group, how we can live that out. Shameless plug. How we can... <laughs> live that out. But how do we live this out practically? Tozer says this, another Tozer quote, love me some toes. By faith and obedience, by constant meditation on the holiness of God, 
by loving righteousness and hating iniquity, by a growing acquaintance with the spirit of holiness. We can acclimate ourselves to the fellowship of the saints on earth and prepare ourselves for the eternal companionship of God and the saints above. Thus, as they say, when humble believers meet, we will have a heaven to go to heaven in. We love churchy words. We love words that belong and are restricted to Sundays. We've reviewed a few phrases, but verses four through seven really want us to understand why is grace so amazing? We just sang it, and I'm glad that we did. Why is grace so amazing? Well, in the early 1700s, there was a British man dedicated to the Royal Navy. He was working hard to serve his country and help it flourish. He was heavily involved in the slave trade and would often trade various people for labor, earning a very large profit for himself. It wasn't until he was caught in a very large storm that he cried out to God for mercy. He survived, and upon surviving, began looking more deeply into Christianity. After his full conversion and leaving the Royal Navy, he became an avid abolitionist dedicated to ending slavery all throughout the region. He himself had sold many slaves. He says this, How industrious is Satan served? I was formerly one of his active under-tempters, and had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. A common drunkard or profligate, or somebody who's recklessly extravagant or wasteful with resources, a common drunkard or profligate is a petty sinner to what I was. Who was this? This was John Newton, the man who wrote these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. What amazing grace indeed. And perhaps you're here today to be more deeply reminded of who God is and what he's called you to be as his child. But perhaps you're here having for the first time ever been opened up to God's truth and word. For the first time, hearing these words is not just something as a ritual or something you should just do because mom said so on Sunday or ink on a page, but rather God's word just became alive. For the first time ever, he's opened up your heart to the truth of his word. God's grace, mercy, kindness, love, and salvation are given to each of his children when? The hour I first believed. As complex as all of this may seem, there's been some big words thrown out there, grace, mercy, redemption. As, as complex as all of this may seem, it's quite simple to become a child of God. If God has gotten a hold of your heart, all he requires of you is to give it to him. You are no longer in charge of your life. You're tired of saying, I know the best way. Are you tired of getting it wrong? Of hurting other people around you? Of watching your life fade into misery? Do you feel like there is nothing that you do that ultimately matters? Maybe you're here and you've gotten to exactly where you want to be and found it to be completely empty. Why? It is because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That everything you do here while might matter here in about 50 years after you die won't matter a single molecule to the people that still exist. Rather, the children of God have been made alive and alive to the full. That everything we do here has an eternal impact. 
If you are not yet a child of God, if you have not given your heart over to him in full and complete capacity and said, my king, my king, please take my heart today, you can absolutely do that at any time by deciding that your life is his, that his ways and by his grace, you will be saved. I want to create an opportunity for you right now that this is a personal relationship. This is not, I am not your avatar to where it's segued through me. (laughs) This is your faith, your relationship. Christian, do we love God enough to believe that the worst of the worst can be saved? Yes, maybe. Think about that this week. And if the answer is yes, do we love people enough to go? We follow and are under the rule of the holy God, the goodest good, the best righteousness, the most merciful mercy, the graciousest grace. Don't know if that's a word. (laughs) The loveliest love, but the holy of holies, completely separate from any of us. With that level of faith, should we not be commissioned God has asked us to no longer sit on the sideline, but to get involved. Ramona went through a lengthy list of how we can get involved. That is how to get involved in the church, yes. But God wants you to get involved in kingdom work. For those of you who have not committed your life to Christ, that starts today. For those of you who are children of God, it is not reserved for just Sunday. We get to live as children of God in all peace, understanding, all grace, all mercy, all love, under the greatest king ever, because he loves you. The holy of holies was kind enough to make a way for us to be in relationship with, 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 with him. You have a reserved seat to anything better, the best thing, the best event, which is eternity in heaven with him. I pray that we would continue to seek after who God is and therefore go out and seek after the people whom he wants us to love most. We love you guys. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for Ephesians. Thank you so much for Paul and for working through him. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and um, your truth, God. And we're just so grateful that we can come here freely um, and really peacefully to enjoy your church, to enjoy your word, to enjoy the living, breathing word of what it is you want us to hear, what it is you want us to, to know and to understand and to fully be changed, God. And so will you please change our hearts, change our lives to be more of a reflection of you. And for those that it, it just became clear that no longer do want to do it my way, no longer do... I want to live under my own rule, but rather I want to live under your rule, the holy of holies, the the great and righteous king. God, for those that that may not know you, I pray right now that you would just work in their hearts. And those of you who have not received, you could just, in your own heart, just repeat after me, God, I am a sinner and separate. I am in the same boat as Paul once was. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins, forgive me of my disobedience, and that you would make me right with you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for opening up my heart, opening up my eyes to understand the truth of who you are. I want to give you my heart and my life. 
Will you be king of my life forever from this day forward? You are a good and gracious king. God, as we jump into communion and as we jump into the last worship song, I pray that you would work in each and every one of your children's hearts to take the bread and drink the cup and be reminded of your goodness, to be reminded of what you've done, to be reminded of who you are. And that this week, it wouldn't just stop here. We'd be eager to get to you. And it wouldn't just be an eagerness to get to life group. It wouldn't be just an eagerness to get to Sunday, but it would be an eagerness and a fight to get into your word to get to pray with you all the day long. We love you so much. Will you change our hearts continuously and constantly? Will you make us more to be like your sons and daughters and less like ourselves? We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, at this time, please take a minute to pray yourself. I I know I, I just prayed, but you have an individual relationship with the Lord. Pray to God. Ask for forgiveness, repentance, for even just this morning, the overt sins, the covert sins, and even the sins you aren't even aware of. Before you take the bread and the cup, get right with the Lord. It is very important. And this is not a ritual that is magic that will be life-changing. These are for God's children to be reminded of his goodness. This is a mark against the enemy to say, I stand with God. I am his child. I am being reminded of what I believe and what I follow. So after you pray, get with your family, get with your friends, take the bread, take the cup to be reminded of what God has done for us and his love and kindness.